Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Edwards. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And I just want to thank everybody for tuning in for another episode this week. And um, sadly, I have to admit that I did not make the event up in Mount Dora last weekend for two reasons. One, Sunday afternoon, I had family in town from um, out of state and we had a big family dinner. And it was the first big family dinner since uh, my stepmother had passed away for some of the uh, relatives who had came down. But also, Saturday night, I was obligated into going to a bachelor party of a family member of mine and I was the only one able to go who was from the family and so I felt obligated to go and so I was out drinking and doing the whole bachelor thing from 7:30 p.m. on Saturday until 3:45 Sunday morning I'm not going to get into that debauchery on this podcast if you want to hear that story in all of its glory Go check out my other podcast. That is the Waterman and D-Train Show. You can find it at d-410.com. Real quick, I want to do some house cleaning like I always do. I still have some What's the Scuttlebutt beta stickers um, available. No, I say beta. I guess I should say test stickers. These are stickers that I got a hold of to see the quality of the sticker, the quality of the print. Um, if it's waterproof, it'll if it'll hold up. Um, I had a couple other stickers made of some of my other podcasts. One of them ended up on a pole out in front of a Starbucks. It's been out there in the hot Florida sun for three weeks. It's still holding up great. They are small stickers. They're only three inches. Um, one of my other podcast listeners sent me a very upset message that he that we accidentally sent him the small sticker. And as I explained to him, hey, that's what they are. They're small. They're sample stickers. That's why we're not charging. If you want them, email us. We're sending them to you for free. You don't have to stick them on your car because his concern was it was too small for people to see on his car, which I greatly appreciate. I appreciate the fact that he wants people to see my podcast advertised on his window. But they these are samples. That's why I'm giving them away. I don't have enough to sell, but I have too many to th- just throw in a box somewhere. So with that being said, if you want one, either hit us up on the private message on any of the social media, whether it's my Instagram, my Twitter, or um, the What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page, or you can just email me. Info at d-410.com or mail call at whatsthescuttlebutt.com. Yes, I know the website's spelled with D's instead of T's. That's because what's the scuttlebutt with T's were taken. However, I am about to uh, register a new shorter version of the website for future reference. But just send us an email at info at d-410.com. That's d-410.com. Tell me you want a free sticker and I will send it to you. Now, something else I am going to get rid of is I have a newly minted USMC M1 helmet cover What's the Scuttlebutt t-shirt that we have been selling on our websites. Now, this is one that I had bought for me. This is the first print from this design because we have the airborne helmet and we have the US Marine Corps M1 cover helmet. It's a picture of my actual helmet that I took in studio with the microphones we use to record this podcast that I painstakingly deleted everything out of the background with Photoshop. The first one I bought the Airborne helmet, it came great from our vendor, which is Teespring, and they're made to order, so it's nice because I don't have to buy these ahead of time. I don't have to spend money and then have them sitting around. The downside is there's very little profit margin for me and I'm trying to run the show, but... I'm more interested in getting the name out there and getting the advertisement than I am making money. 
The problem with this shirt was, is for some reason, even though it's the exact same setup as the Airborne helmet that I had ordered, which came great, the logo on this shirt sat too low. It was actually down below my chest, and it just looked silly. So I reached out to the people at uh, Teespring. They told me to hold tight. They had their engineers look at it. They redesigned the shirt. They sent me another one, and it was fixed. So I have this brand new, never been worn except for two seconds when I realized the logo was too low. Olive drab green, what's the scuttlebutt t-shirt? I have one. It is a factory defect. I don't know if you want to wear it because the logo is too low, but I figured if somebody wants a wall hanger for their garage or something, um, I don't know. If you want this shirt, email me at uh, info at d-410.com or mail call at what's the scuttlebutt.com. Send me your address and the first person who sends it to me, I will send out the shirt. And if you already do not have a sticker, I have a handful of those left, I will shoot you one of those. And I've been threatening you guys with having him back on for an episode or two now. And uh, we finally sorted it out. Joining us once again, coming from Georgia... He's the man who put together the Lakeland, Georgia World War II weekend. I found out he's handy with a git fiddle around the old bonfire, but he didn't want to talk about that. It's our friend, our college professor, our smartest guy we know, Jeremy Petrella. <laughs> Jeremy, how are you doing today, fellow? I'm, I'm doing pretty good, Don. Let's not get carried away with that greeting. I'm, oh. just, I'm just glad to be healthy again, because uh, after that Lakeland event, I, I was laid up for a few weeks. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the, the kids brought home the creepy crud from school, which handed it on to you, and you you yeah. marched into the uh, cold with stalwart and, and bravery, and you put forth the best effort, but the, the weather finally beat you down, and like you said, the good thing about being sick um, with the new family member in your family, it allowed you and the wife to actually get caught up on some sleep because some family members felt bad for you and took the kids away for the weekend. <laughs> that, that's right. That was uh, that was one of the funniest things that came out of the Lakeland event was it actually gave me the first night sleep in a long while. Um, and I appreciate that from all of you who came up. Well, it was a great weekend. I had a great time. Um, met a wonderful woman. Um, and yeah. I, I actually listened to your to your, your show with uh, Nell Rockmore, and that was great. Well, I will tell you, you're not the only one. The Nell Rockmore show has been the most downloaded and most listened to show since Clay Bonnyman Evans' episode. Um, and that one is still going high and, and going strong. Um, for those of you listening, if you hear the cat crying, please ignore it. Um, hopefully someone will hear him and scoop him up here with a quickness. But it doesn't sound that way. So uh, hold tight and let me go tend to the cat and we'll be right back. Hold tight. Spam was introduced by Hormel in 1937. The product was intended to increase the sales of pork shoulder, which wasn't very popular at the time. Hormel claims the meaning of the name is known only by a small circle of former Hormel food executives, but popular beliefs are that the name is an abbreviation for spiced ham, spare meat, or shoulder of pork and ham. Another popular explanation is SPAM is actually an acronym standing for Specially Processed Army Meat. Due to the difficulties of delivering fresh meat to the front during World War II, SPAM became an ubiquitous part of the United States soldier's diet. Some jokingly referred to SPAM as ham that didn't pass its physical or meatloaf without basic training. By the war's end, over 150 pounds of SPAM had been purchased by the United States military. During World War II and the occupations that followed, SPAM was introduced into Guam, Hawaii, Okinawa, and the Philippines. 
as well as other islands in the Pacific. As consequences of World War II's rationing in the Lend-Lease Act, Spam also gained prominence in the United Kingdom. In addition to increasing production for the United Kingdom, Hormel also expanded output as part of the Allies' aid to the similarly beleaguered Soviet Union. Nikita Krishnikov once declared, without Spam we wouldn't have been able to feed our army. Throughout the war, countries ravaged by conflict and faced with strict food rationings came to appreciate the value of Spam. And I'm back, and while we went ahead and take that break, let's just say this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been providing IT service for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. Their primary objective is to maintain veterinarian clinics, get their networks working as stellar as possible so they can keep your animals healthy. Act Computers also does residential computer repair, residential laptop repair, tablets repair, cell phone repair, etc. You have a brand new printer that's giving you hiccups? At Computers can help. Your wife spilled wine on the keyboard of your new laptop? At Computers can help. Don't laugh, it's happened multiple times since 2004. Are you remoting into your office computer and are you concerned about security? At Computers can help you with two-form factor authentication. Not sure what that is? Best way to explain it, you know how the first time you log into your Gmail from a different computer and you get the pop-up on your phone from Google saying, hey, is that you? Well, that's two-form authentication. At Computers can help put that on your server so that when you remote in from home, your computer will pop up and ask you, hey, are you remoting in? You click yes, and it'll uh, allow you in. You click no, it'll deny access. At Computers can help you with all your IT needs, and you're saying, hey, Don, fella, I'm in Montana. How is this going to help me? Well, as long as you have internet connectivity, At Computers can help you. That's right. They can log into your computer remotely from their website to help with any IT problems you're having. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 or hit them up on their website, act-capecoral.com. Hey, Jeremy, we're back. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm just glad it wasn't my cat. Well, see, I got a 14-pound Bengal cat, and uh, they're very vocal, not to mention the tend to get a wild hair up their ass every once in a while and they'll back into the corner. Now the good news is he's becoming an old man so he's starting to settle down, but he's still quite vocal. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. It's good to be, be vocal in your old age. Absolutely. And so back real quick to the Georgia World War II weekend at Lakeland, yeah. Georgia. Uh, the weather was great, uh, especially Saturday. Uh, the turnout was pretty good. I think the reenactment itself went off I think as, as best planned as they usually do go. And I think everyone yeah. who uh, showed up in Florida represented heavily. I think everyone was happy, and I think next year we'll have a good turnout if there is a next year. Is there one? Oh, yes, there is. And, and first off, I want to thank all the guys from Florida for coming up. We, we really kind of understood that if, if we were going to have the numbers, it was probably going to be you guys, and, and it was. And, uh, and just to give the numbers, there, there was at the end of the day um, 43 registered reenactors. And the, and the crowd wasn't as big as we wanted, but you and I both talked about that that weekend, um, how to fix that one. But, but we still saw a good 100 to 200 spectators, which, which was, again, for a first-year event, we were very happy with. Um, the exciting part is um, we decided to jump in with both feet and go to the larger site, which is uh, Camp Patton, which is a Boy Scouts of America camp that, as I heard on your last uh, podcast there, is a... Uh, is about a mile down the road from where we were at. Yes, I actually and saw it before I saw your site because the fine people at Google sent me the wrong direction. That's right. That's why we figured we'd go ahead and go there. That way when people Google the site, they'll end up there. Um, no, I, I wish it was that simple. Uh, 
but basically, as a larger site, it offers us a lot more opportunities. And I was actually down at the Dade event, the Dade Living History, um, last weekend, and we had a long talk about the direction we were planning to go with this. And as of this week, where it is, it's going to mainly be a tactical. In other words, to, to, to lay it out for the reenactors, it's going to be a Friday. If you get there on Friday, we're going to start fighting Friday through Saturday morning tactical. At the same time, the property is big enough for those that just like doing living history there will be a parallel living history for spectators on Saturday. But if, if you don't want to have, as a reenactor, if you just want to be immersive in a tactical and don't want to have anything to do with that, you don't have to. Except for there will be this little half-hour moment or so where our tactical gets to where the spectators can see, and they get a little show, and then we move on with life. Um, and then Saturday night will be the USO show, like we did this year at the Three Center. The band is really excited to be back, and uh, we're really looking forward to what we can make out of this. Well, the nice thing is, is which I discovered when uh, enjoying my first experience at a um, huddle house, the town is very, very small. I was talking to the waitress. I think she said her junior class in high school, they had like maybe 130 kids. Um, that sounds about right. The nice thing about a small town like that is as this event grows in maybe a year or two, maybe three down the road, the people over at Chamber of Commerce is going to say, you know, every year about this time, our economy seems to pick up for some weird reason, and we're getting all this traffic, and all these weird guys wearing these funny uniforms. What's the deal with that? And once they start seeing the amount of people that this event is starting to bring in from out of state, and obviously with trickle-down economics, the money that comes along with it in the form of gas, food, you know, eating at the restaurants, what have you, that may encourage them to get more involved with uh, advertising and getting the words out and actually, you know, sponsoring it a little bit more because the town is so small that when this thing comes in each year, it, jokingly, you know, the uh, the town's population will increase by 4% and uh, it'll be a good money get for them and it may actually turn into something even bigger. Absolutely, and that was actually where we were at this past weekend um, as we were as we were planning. Is there was a moment where we were thinking about making this just a closed tactical, and, and the decision was made to try and find a way to keep the spectator component involved, just simply because the people who did come were so appreciative, and there was this sense of we got a foot in the door, and if we just let that go, mm -hmm. then you're going to lose a little bit of that community support. And, and we didn't want that. And so we, we figured out a way to make it work. We're, we're going to try to have our cake and eat it too, which I know some, some reenactors, in fact, I could name names, but I won't on your podcast, think we might be biting off more than we can chew. But we a lot of people thought that the first year round we bit off more than we could chew, and we pulled it off. So so we're feeling that, that this is a very doable thing. And, and we do have support from... from uh, groups in the school we have support from the local boy scout units and we're hoping that that like you just said down that that can grow and uh and make this into something that that we haven't seen in uh, this region as far as i know ever in south georgia but but even in, in north florida lately it's been a while since we've had a good uh a good sized event and the nice thing about that location is it's really not that far from florida and i mean i'm at the I'm at but almost as low as you can go down in Florida. I mean, I'm damn near Naples, and it was only like a three-and-a-half-hour drive, which, you know, yeah. 
it's nice, it's close, but it's far enough out of the state of Florida for you Floridians out there that you get a little bit of a change in scenery. They do still have the sandy soil, but you start to get more northern indigenous wildlife, which is, when it comes to taking photographs is a little more conducive to the uh, European theater. Speaking of the yeah. European theater, what timeline are you guys um, planning for for next year as far as well, the scenario yeah. goes? Absolutely. After some serious debate, um, the, the, the Western Front uh, people won out, and we're going to be doing uh, a scenario based around Malmody in December and January of 40, uh, 44 to 45. Um, you know, the, basically in Belgium. The one thing I, I assured a couple people I could not promise them was snow, because since we only get snow about once every decade, that probably wasn't going to happen. But this way, we did switch it up from the Italian front to the, the, the Belgian front, and we figured maybe in future years we could switch it back, and that way there's plenty of variety for people to have different experiences. Sure, because one of the biggest killers of an event is monotony, doing the same exact thing every year, year in, year out, not only for the reenactors, but for the, the townies, the locals who came last year, and then they come the year next year, and like, well, it's the same thing as last year. It's the same... Same scenario, same story, same people, same uniforms. And so I think it's definitely beneficial to try to keep it more dynamic and um, more thrilling for the casual observers. And, and one of the things where we've been excited about with Camp Patton is um, not only is it a bigger site, um, it has a tremendous amount of potential in terms of varied uh, terrain. Um, it's right along the Alapaha River, um, so there's, there's water, you know, areas with a waterfront. Um, there's also heavily wooded areas, there's roads, it, it just has a lot of different things. So hopefully, like you're saying, is, is we can come up with some great scenarios for everybody this year, but also have the potential to have, save some of the tricks for coming years so that we can keep trying to do different things. And um, if anybody's interested in getting their, um, not really registration, but they want to get this on their list, get it planned for the future... Because, um, you know, we all like to have ideas of what we're doing over the next few months or even further down the line just so we can plan accordingly. Where can people find more information about your group and uh, this event coming up next, what, what next February? Or? It's going to be next January. January. I, I can tell you this. To, to go ahead and pencil in your calendar, it's going to be Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend again, um, which would be January 16th through the 19th, 2020. Um, as of right now, that since the decisions were just made to, to, to finalize the event, I don't think, as far as I know, we don't have a website up yet. Well, your group um, so does have a Facebook have any, page, though, right? Exactly. I was going to say, I don't have any direct connection, but we do have a Facebook page, which is the 63rd Signal Battalion uh, Reenactors. And from there, you can you can go ahead and drop us a message, and we can once again try to start giving the information out and and just like last time it'll be a, a, a steady trickle um and the exciting part is is our first year in lakeland um we put the whole thing together in about three months and this time we've got 11 months to <laughs> to be able to make sure that we get dot the i's and cross the t's and get everything done exactly and i'm looking forward to it and uh, maybe we'll try to uh, come up with some more special effects uh, that we can use one of the things that people love the most is there's a reenactor who was in town, and the gentleman at some point in his life, whether he was born that way or had an accident, I have too much uh, pride to ask, but uh, this gentleman had lost a leg somewhere in his life and had a prosthetic leg and was more than willing 
to be the infantryman who stepped on the landmine and lost his leg. And uh, that went over pretty well with the crowd. Yeah, that that was uh, one of those last-minute realizations uh, when Jerry came to us and uh, said, you know, pointed out that he could do that. It was like, you know, we're going to put this in there. We're going to give him a good show. And, and yeah, that, that landmine did its job. And, uh, um, again, that, that's a lot of it is trying to come up with new ideas for the spectators, for things for them to see. So it's a good show. But also, in the case of next year, so much of our focus is going to be on, you know, a basically immersive tactical weekend, but we want to use those same tricks we used with the spectators with our fellow reenactors and, and be able to give, you know, a, a scenario that'll be something that, that'll that'll excite them and, and keep them entertained. And as we tend to do with this podcast, we will have Jeremy on probably one or two more times to promote this event as time gets closer. And uh, we're going to change things up a little bit. Um, I gave Jeremy a a little bit of a homework assignment, because I came across I this article. It was work, it, It's a long <laughs> read, but the guy, the guys, plural, the, the author and his researchers, they put forth a tremendous amount of work on this article. I'm not, I'll post it along with this episode. We're not going to read it verbatim. We're going to hit the finer points and then kind of just talk it through and see where the conversation goes. Um, but this article is called Debunking the Myth of Robert Kappa on D-Day by A.D. Coleman. And real quick, for those of you who don't know, the quote-unquote myth is this, that Robert Kappa landed on D-Day with the first wave at 0630. He stayed for about 90 minutes until he ran out of film, shot between 72 and 144 photos using his Kodak's 20 film. The story was that he only had eight photos published because those were the only ones that survived the incident. Ooh, that's intriguing, the incident. What incident, are you wondering? Was it something on the beach? No, Time Life magazine claimed that the photo house they used to develop film on this day, um, for some reason, the uh, darkroom assistant editor, John Morris, had employed a very young man who had very little um, experience working in a darkroom. Now, somebody who spent eight semesters, nay, who wasted eight semesters in high school doing black and white photography because it is a dead art, and there's no one out there developing film commercially anymore so unless you're a photographer and a developer you may make some money but even then everybody wants digital and so I have a little experience with working in dark rooms after eight semesters in high school of this stuff and so I kind of agree with what the author of this hypothesis stated and here it is basically Time Life magazine saying the photo house that they used to develop the film shot by Kappa and they're saying there's four rolls so they're saying there's four rolls of films that he shot on D-Day and that this inexperienced um, kid, if you will, who was working in a developing house, for some reason, after he rents the film after developing it, because not to get into the history of how to develop film, but basically you have to go into a pitch black loading closet, and in the dark, you take a can opener, you pop open your 35 millimeter film, you load it into a canister about the size of a coffee can, um, but you take the top off and there's reels in there, and you load the 35 millimeter negative into the wheels and you click it back and forth back and forth it loads into the spindle so there there is about a quarter inch gap in between the film so that the negatives aren't touching so that the developer the stop bath and the fix can get in between the negative and develop the film properly and then you rinse it with water only after you rinse it with water and you've used fix on the film as the name implies fix now the film is safe to use in light now the interesting thing Dark rooms, yes, you have a low red light in the corner. 
that does not affect the paper when developing film. However, the negative itself before you apply the stop bath and affix to it is light sensitive, any lights whatsoever. So when you do that loading process, you do in fact have to do that in a pitch black closet with no ambient light whatsoever. So according to the myth, the kid did this and he's renting it. And then when he hung it up in the drying closet, they claim that he, one, shut the doors, which apparently at this photo house, the history was they would leave the doors open. And then they had a small little room heater with um, heated coils, much like you would see in a toaster oven. And they were drying the film. And according to the myth or to, you know, the photo house, the doors were kept closed. The film got too hot. The negatives melted. And those eight photos were able to be salvaged. Well, according to this author of this hypothesis, which I agree with on this point, and I will only say I agree with this point, the rest of it, I'll let you make your own decisions. But according to A.D. Coleman, that part of the story is a big red flag because the whole reason you put the negatives in the drying cabinet is to close the door so that it is basically um, isolated, if you will, from dust that's floating in the atmosphere. So that as the negatives dry, you don't have any dust settling on the negatives thus becoming part of the negatives and making your photos come out spotty after you put it through the enlarger head and actually develop your film. So, big red flag. You're trying to say that the reason this film melted was because the cabinet doors were kept closed instead of open and the heater was too hot. But as he pointed out, the heaters that they were using back in those days, back in 42, really cannot put off that much heat. It's not like there's a blower behind it or a hair dryer where it was blowing the heat into the cabinet. It was just a box with a heating coil in it sitting there ambiently. And so his first point is the fact that they're saying this negative melted is complete nonsense. And this is where I feel like it's pretty interesting. And I know Jeremy did a lot of reading on this too. Anything I missed so far, Jeremy? Oh, uh, you, 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 that was a very detailed uh, synopsis of it there, Don. I was, well, you I know, was... after eight semesters of doing that, and now we all live in a digital world, I like to know that some of that information went, went somewhere. I was going to say, you had to make sure to use it. Okay, and so here's where the evidence, the interesting stuff starts. Now, as we said earlier, the, the lifelong story is that he landed at 6.30 with the first wave. According to the official history of the United States Coast Guard, 15 waves of LCVPs, commonly called Higgins boats, carried troops from the USS Samuel Chase for Omaha Beach that morning. Kappa almost certainly rode in with Colonel Taylor and his staff, the command group of Company E of the 16th Infantry Regiment, U.S. 1st Infantry Division, to which Kappa had been assigned. Um, they constituted part of the 13th wave. That wave arrived at Easy Red Sector on Omaha Beach at 8.15, a half hour after the last of the 16th Infantry Regiment's nine rifle companies. So basically what they're saying is he did not land at 6.30 in the morning, as the story has been said for years. According to the official history of the Coast Guard, they're saying he landed at 8.15 after the first nine waves of rifle companies landed. And here's where it gets interesting. Their hypothesis is, is the story that we've all come to know over the last 75 years was basically Time Life magazine trying to cover their own ass, if you will. Because, according to their story, the reason only eight negatives showed up is because there was nothing going on. At 8.15, pretty much the nine waves of riflemen had taken most of the fire, and by the time Kappa got there with the command staff, most of the heavy firing 
had been taking place. There was, you know, there's a few pop shots going off here and there, but most of the beach had been secured from a large amount of the combat. And that's why, out of all the film that he allegedly shot, all 144 frames, only eight were actually published. Because they're basically saying once he got there, there was nothing really going on. There wasn't much to shoot at. What I got from the story was basically that, Don, in, in this basic sense that what they're pointing out is that Robert Kappa, um, you know, had this habit of inflating his own um, his own story. That here he waded into combat and did all this, but what they're saying is actually he didn't. He took a few pictures, and then they came up with a good story to go with it. They also said he had a bad habit of not including description cards with his film. He would just turn in the film mm-hmm. and not have any description cards. And they also yeah. pointed out that in one of Kappa's early memoirs, he said he only landed with two cameras and he only shot two rolls of film. Well, then yeah. where did the other four rolls come from? Exactly. And that's, I guess, the, the part of it that I found interesting was, was there is this sense that Robert Kappa might have been inflating his own, his own myth himself. Which, when you think about it, if, if you, you read about Robert Kappa, wouldn't be a huge surprise. Um, seeing his track record from the Spanish Civil War, be, being a friend of Ernest Hemingway just kind of says there's probably a little narcissist in you. <laughs> so I could see that. But what, what struck me is exactly what you're pointing out was the fact that Time Magazine was in on this. And I thought that was interesting, that there seems to be kind of this, it's not just one guy kind of, you know, making up a story about himself, but there's a conspiracy here to basically cover up what actually had happened that includes Time Magazine, includes, you know, the the publisher and the editors. Well, in the story that quote one of his books said, Kappa did not run out of film, nor did his camera jam, nor did seawater damage either of his cameras or his film. In his memoirs, Kappa first implies that he, he exposed at most two full rolls of 35mm film, uh, one roll in each of his two, uh, contact two rangefinder cameras, 72 frames in all at Omaha Beach. By the end of the chapter, um, this has grown somehow to 106 pictures in all, which only eight were salvaged. Funny thing is, is whoever perpetrated this, I don't know if you want to say cover-up, but we'll just say inflated story, is one of the things they tried to use to use as evidence as the quote-unquote darkroom mishap is that they show on the negatives, you can see where the, the exposed picture rolls over to the sprockets of the film. And they're like, see, this is where the the uh, chemicals started to slide off the frame of the photo, which is next to impossible. Now, once again, the author of the story, he's a huge photographer and did his due diligence. And he pointed out that um, the contacts camera loaded with the shorter Kodak cassette uh, film was known for showing the sprockets. Because basically, inside of the camera, you have your aperture. And the aperture window has a certain size. As the name implies, 35 millimeter. But for whatever reason, when they designed to produce this particular camera, that window was just a little bit larger. And so, if you go back and look at any of the negatives, um, any of that that particular brand Kodak cassette negative that was shot through that particular camera, almost all of it shows that the exposure bled over to the sprockets. And you also see that in, I want to say modern day cameras, but 1980s, 1990s, 35mm cameras, it was not uncommon to see the film exposed over the negatives on the sprocket. And so it was interesting to see that that was one of the excuses they used. And the other cool thing about this article is they went and they located other uh, pictures shot by other photographers 
on some of the um, naval vessels. And much like Jeremy's favorite song that I heard him sing in person around a campfire back at Alice's restaurant during the trash debacle, the district attorney came in with four or five black and white eight by tens with X's and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what it was. Well, in this story, they found photos from that same day and they found landmarks. Uh, one of them was a tank and some of the um, obstruction and they pinpointed it and then they used Kappa's uh, pictures that had the same tank but from a different angle and that's one of the ways they proved the timeline because that vessel landed in a generalized time after that vessel had taken a photo and so the, like I said at the beginning of this they go through great great detail in trying to prove the quote-unquote myth is being wrong. Oh yeah and, and that there is no doubt that the authors of this article did a, a fantastic job of all of those details and, and I think in a larger sense what this story is kind of pointing out is that, you know, when we as reenactors and living historians do a lot of our research, the first thing we look to is those firsthand accounts, mm -hmm. those primary sources, because they were there. But this reminds you that even the people that are there when something happens, sometimes have an agenda, or it might even be just confusion or whatever it is. That, that this idea of making sure you cross-reference and you look at it from other angles because truth is what they're seeing isn't always what's happening. And, and, and you see that in, in, this, in this story, that, the, that this story that was laid out by the people who were quote-unquote there, Robert Kappa, um, it, it had grown to the proportion, like they pointed out in the article, that everybody who retold the story was getting it from the same source. Well, with that said whatever that source was, it was their story. And that became the history. Well, and one of the other great details they used, because once again, out of eight photos, there was very few action shots. He had a few photos prior to the landing, some of them on the, um, the landing crafts. But the one photo he was known for, you have four infantrymen laying in prone oh, position yeah. in the water. Now, as a reenactor, I should know this. What the hell are those obstacles called on the beach? Other than big steel X's, <laughs> yeah, it's a hedgehog. So they're hiding One behind. Of the names for them. They're hiding behind. They're basically laying prone, and this shot has always been used as evidence of men prone down, taking cover from machine gun fire. And now this photo has been around for seventy-five years, but for some reason, and I'll admit, I didn't point it out because one, I'm not up to speed on my helmet markings, but yeah. The gentleman who wrote this article pointed out the fact that you can see the helmet markings. He did some research, and it turns out these weren't your everyday foot sloggers hiding from machine gun fires, that these gentlemen were actually part of the demolition team whose job it was to clear out the section of Omaha Beach of Easy Red, and that, that these guys weren't, in fact, hiding from machine gun fire. These guys were laying down preparing to do whatever it took to get these obstacles out of the way. I don't know if they're planning C4. I don't know what exactly they're doing. But uh, they basically point out in this photo that, no, they're not ducking down from strafing fire. They're actually working on getting that obstacle out of it, out of the way. Their job was to clear the beach. Yeah, no, I, that was, I, just like you, it was a fascinating moment as I looked at the picture and then saw the markings. And I, that is, that's an ordinance soldier right there. And I was like, how, like you said, how did I miss that? And again, it goes back to that you see what you want to believe kind of moment, and, and you just kind of dismiss it. And that's, 
that's one of the, the things that that, uh, that that further research can uh, can can fix. And, and I'll tell you though, Don, as, as I read this article, I, I kept also thinking again about the historical context of it mm-hmm. and realizing, you know, th- this isn't a surprise when you think about it. It shouldn't be. This idea that individuals and companies, so in this case Time Magazine and Robert Kappa, basically bend the truth a little bit to make a better story because we see it throughout history. And, and one of the parallels um, from my previous life as, as a Civil War uh, reenactor and historian is, uh, is Matthew Brady. Again, a photographer, famous as the most famous photographer in, in the Civil War. But truth be told, most of the famous Matthew Brady pictures, he never took them. They, he actually had a group of uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 assistants that he'd sent out there, and they were the ones taking the pictures. But similar to how Kappa never wrote down his, his description card, Brady never wrote down who took what picture. So when it came out, it was always just under his name. And let's also not forget that Life magazine, they were the CNN of their day, the Fox News of their day, the MSNBC of their day. Obviously, you you had NBC Radio and RCA Radio, but when it came to print media, you had your newspapers and then you had your magazines. And so here they are sending their their liaisons, their representatives, their men. They're they're putting them out in the field, much like you see your Anderson Coopers and and everybody else. They have a brand that they're trying to sell. Absolutely. They didn't want to say, hey, yeah, we sent Cap out. Eh, we missed the story. He got eight shots. Here they are. Whoop-de-doo. No, you, you have to protect your brand. And you have to sell the story even if the story is not true. And I'm not one to attack media, but for those of you who don't know, I just worked in radio for five and a half years, almost six. And yes, radio is the bottom rung of the entertainment industry. And they are now the bottom rung of quote-unquote media but truth be told, they are the media. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is how easily, even if you didn't do it intentionally, like, for example, talk, I was producer of a talk radio show, and we would have these inside jokes or these just those little things that we would say repetitively, um, not malicious, but just little inside jokes or little stories that never really happened. They're just far-fetched. But if you say them enough, they become truth. And then when you actually are telling something and you're telling it intentionally, you have to be careful of the details in which you give because people hear you on the radio, it must be true. And so I quickly got a first-hand account of how easy it is to make up stuff out of whole cloth and pass it off on that vehicle and how easily people believe you. Yeah. Once I got to looking around the radio station... And not that I'm putting anybody down, but most of us, none of us really went to journalism school. Uh, a few of the old timers, um, the guy I worked with, he was, you know, he did take journalism in college, but you no, know, he wasn't actually a reporter. But, you know, our show, we did try to stand by the whole find three sources thing. But I'm looking around and I'm thinking, well, we're all in media. We could all get media passes. What we say on the air, people buy in whole cloth, at least a lot of them do. And a lot of the people here know people who work at the local news affiliates. They're no different than us. Then I got to thinking, you know, maybe the stuff people say about the large news organizations making up crap and passing it off as the truth isn't too far-fetched. Because I could go on my show here at 2 o'clock and make up something completely 
ludicrous as long as the three of us are on the same page and telling it with the right conviction we can make it believable and at least a quarter of the audience would believe that it's true so why is it so far-fetched to think that these large companies that who no longer are actually telling the news but selling a product and a brand whether it's cnn or fox news they all doing the same thing they're all more editorializing than they are actually a, a legitimate news source if we could do that easily at this level why is it so hard to think that it could be happening at that level yeah and 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 the way i like to look at it in the sense of like you just in terms of what we're talking about like you just said don i don't want to bash the, the news in the sense of this this is one of those moments where you realize this is nothing new. Yeah, it's been going on forever. Kind of, this kind of behavior has been going on for a long time. So while we sit there and, you know, some people feel that the media is, is falling apart to the point where the world is collapsing, it's like, no, <laughs> this happens. And not that it's a good thing, but to understand, like you just pointed out, what the media's role is and that while it's a good source of getting information, you also have to be, you know, leery when... when when things don't pass the smell test, to, to think about it for a second, um, and and that's and and this Kappa story, once once they started, you know, going through the details of it, it fits that category. And like you said, is we just did it because I accidentally seen Time Magazine earlier. It's Life Magazine. Yeah. There, I might have just confused some of your listeners into thinking it's a whole different magazine. But that was just me saying the wrong, uh, you know, four-letter word. And for the sake of time in this podcast. Jeremy and I just barely dipped our toe into this. Um, yeah, you can say it's a conspiracy, and you may be right, but and when I first started reading this, I, I was like, okay, this ought to be fun. This is a long, long read. I mean, this there's so much evidence, both graphs, photos, X's, arrows, side-by-side -side comparisons, the amount of evidence that these guys had compiled. And part of the reason they did this, and they opened the paragraph with it, is that this has been going on for 74 years, and now that it's the 75th anniversary, every History Channel show you turn on, every um, Discovery Channel program, whatever, anytime Kappa's name comes up, it's usually followed by the same regurgitated story, and they felt that it was important with this being the 75th year uh, anniversary of D-Day to quote-unquote set the record straight. Now, once again, I'm not saying this is 100% true. I will say they present a lot of good arguments and uh, what you might consider evidence and um, I think if you go into this with an open mind not wanting to defend nor um, harass Kappa but just go in this as just a general guy who knows nothing about the subject who just stumbled upon their story I think um, they do a pretty good job at convincing you that this is probably what happened the reason there was only eight photos is because at the end of the day, by the time he got there, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot going on. Or he only took eight photos. Yeah. That was the, the other part of it that, that it came down to. Is there wasn't a lot going on. He was ready to get back to get those pictures turned in. And that's the thing, too, is, you know, um, they basically point out that, much like today, that today the problem is everybody's more concerned about being first than to be right. But back then they wanted to be first and right. And so he had to get the photos before the, before the deadline. And it's interesting, they also go to talk about other um, authors and other investigators who've had similar questions, but um, the Kappa family is so protective of the story, and rightfully so, that once you start going down this road, you will have a very hard time getting licensing 
to publish the photos to accompany your story. Again, the, the interesting idea of, of the fact that the family is, is protecting the story of, of Robert Kappa, and, and it is true because he's a brand, and that brand goes beyond those photos, even though it's one of his most important and endearing um, moments. But, you know, his, his story in the Spanish Civil War, his story throughout as, as this great war correspondent, and this isn't the first time, and this, you know, kind of digging a little bit, this isn't the first time he's, his work has come under scrutiny of uh, this doesn't quite add up, that this is exactly how it happened. So, so it does seem like that there is definitely grounds for, for the article that's, that was written you know, to question what, how this all went down like that. And to put it in a 1940 perspective, um, common knowledge of how the development process and the handling of negatives at a, at a photo lab, you know, it wasn't well known. I mean, by today's standards, it would be the equivalent of them blaming it on a computer server database corruption, and the majority of the public don't know how databases and, you know, all that stuff works. Back then, yes, photography had been around for a long time, but by the 40s, it was at its height as far as technology goes and once again your everyday mom and pop farmer and you know people who live in their daily lives unless they could afford a camera and afford access to a dark room a majority of the general public didn't understand how the development process went they sure as hell didn't have photography classes offered at every high school like we did in the 70s 80s and 90s and so it was easy to come up with a story okay he shot four rolls of film but some 15 year old kid some apprentice at the um dark room because the the film got there late and all the experienced staff had gone home but we needed to get this negative developed so that it made in time for you know publishing he fumbled he messed up and you know whoopsie and who's going to argue with it yeah and that, that was that was one of the things that i wrote down to myself was was dennis banks was the quote-unquote dark room lad and i said now there's somebody who has an interesting story if, if, if he was still alive yeah, which uh, my my wild guess is he isn't, or else they would have talked to him, um, based on the depth of the research in this article, because because that's the individual who was blamed for all of this. Mm -hmm. Man, talk about being the fall guy. I just hope that fall came with some money. <laughs> I mean, there had to be a little bit of hush money, you would think. I mean, because essentially, yeah. if if you're this young lad and you're being blamed for destroying these negatives. It's safe to say that your career opportunities working at other photo labs are going to be nil, close to none. Yeah. At the, at the same time, they might have convinced him he did it. Yeah. Or we, we could play devil's advocate, and maybe he did. Yeah. And, and just to, you know, not, not to, to harp on it, but just something that wasn't in the article. Um, but we were talking about parallels. I'd mentioned that Civil War parallel before is a photographer by the name of Alexander Gardner. Um, was working for Matthew Brady in the Civil War and took what's one of the most famous pictures of the Civil War, which is called the Sniper's Nest at Gettysburg, where he took a picture of a dead young Confederate sniper, and, and it goes down as one of the most famous photographs of the war. Well, it turns out, many, many, many years later, it's discovered he set the whole thing up, that wow. they actually moved the body, that they staged the shot. And it's it's, same, it's a similar story is that some people saw other pictures and realized, wait a minute, this body in this picture over here is the same body. And after you started putting things together, there was this realization that they completely staged what becomes this iconic image. So, again, there is this precedent for people whose job it is, you know, to sell these images 
bless their hearts, they're trying to <laughs> they're trying to make some money, so they're going to make sure they get the shot and get the story they need. Sometimes it seems to have a lot in common with Robert Kappa here. There, that, that that's why I I feel after reading the article, I can kind of buy it. Is is he's a guy trying to sell his image, and it fits that image. Yep. And you don't want to be known as the war correspondent who missed the show. Well, exactly. I mean, the war correspondent who took the pictures of the uh, the supply truck. Yeah, I mean, I'd be like the you know you're a front line sports reporter. You have tickets for the Super Bowl and you overslept. Yeah. We will. Um, I will add that link. And I got some interesting news. Yes, I understand what's the scuttlebutt.com. It was misspelled intentionally because what's the scuttlebutt.com was taken by somebody else. And so I had to buy the domain name with these instead of T's, and it gets confusing. People can't find it. As of today, effective now, WTSP WWII, aka WTSP World War II.com is up and running. So now you don't have to fumble with the long domain name. Just type in WTSP World War II.com, it'll take you right to our website. And that is where you'll find the link to this story. And before you go, Jeremy, I just want to ask you are you familiar with this Indiegogo film? It hit its goal it's called walking point it's about um u.s marine corps dog handlers fighting in guam i i am i'm only aware of it through your links and other people's links on facebook but but i have seen it you know part those the, the posts that people are making it and it does look very good well check us out walking point is a tale of love loss and victory this is a film that doesn't shy away from faith family or patriotism it's a world war ii drama that centers around a young marine Private John Markle, played by L.A. actor Lou Wagner, and his donated canine companion, the heroic Duke. Private John Markle falls in love with a beautiful Dogs of Defense volunteer trainer named Emily, played by Dallas actress Liza Wilk. He and Duke are quickly shipped off to Guam to help liberate the island from the Japanese Empire right as John and Emily's love is blossoming. Private John Markle has two goals. One, to make it back to Emily, and two, bring Duke back safe to the patriotic family that had donated him. Now, that's interesting. I, you know, I never realized that those dogs were donated to the Marine Corps. I just kind of assumed that they had their own, you know, they just had their own breeders and bred them. Actually, I, I, that's something that's it's funny that, that they came up with this movie is because I was just reading um, in, in a book that I inherited, uh, a BFW book, uh, History of World War Two, and... Uh, and it actually was talking about that, that, yeah, that, that the dogs that were being used by the Marines were actually donated and on loan, that they were, they were basically drafted similar to the soldiers from actual family. That's crazy. Now, the reason I bring this up, and this is a super crazy story, and the reason I've been sharing all these links, I first became aware of this independent film, which I'm a big fan of independent films. Um, you know, we talked about... Um, some independent World War II films here in the past and interviewed the uh, production crew and directors. Um, this was an Indiegogo film. They actually raised money. And I learned of this by following the National Pacific Museum on Instagram. And they they tweeted, well, they didn't tweet, it's Instagram. They, they posted a story about it. And I started looking at it, and I do what I always do. I contacted them and I said, hey, my name is Don Abernathy. I host a World War II-based podcast. I'd love to have you on to promote your film and your project. And they got back to me and they said, hey, let's, let me give the director, see what he says. Where can we hear some of your past episodes? And so I sent them a link and they promptly got back to me and they said, where are you located? Florida? Question mark. And I replied, yes, I'm down here in Cape Coral. Well, actually, I said Fort Myers, Naples, because no one knows where Cape Coral is. So when anybody asks me where I'm at, I say Fort, My Fort Myers. 
And they said, well, we are actually shooting our final scenes on this date at this location. That location is in my backyard. And my mind's blown away. And I said, well, that's right in my backyard. How about this? Instead of us doing a phone interview, you guys come to my studio and we'll do it live. But they got back to me and they said, well, you know, in order to do this interview, do we got to come to you or can you come to us? And I said, oh, I can come to you. And so long story short, reason I'm saying all this, next weekend on St. Patrick's Day, uh, What's the Scuttlebutt? We'll be packing up our studio and heading out to the film location of Walking Point to interview the dog handler. Hopefully I'll get to see Duke the Canine. He's a badass looking Doberman. The uh, main actor, the writer and director. And so I hope to be coming to you guys with some great behind the scene photos, possibly some videos, and hopefully some really, really good in-depth interviews with the cast of this movie. And hopefully our fan base here will help get the word out about this independent film that started out as a passion project and to be honest, talking to them, I it has well exceeded their expectations. And so I am super thrilled about it. They've been promoting my podcast. I can't wait to get on there. That's great. I can't wait to listen to it, Don. And if you want to get more information on the independent World War II movie, Walking Point, just go to uh, my website, WTSPWorldWar2.com, because the URL for this page is extremely long, and I don't want to have to uh, try to read it off for you guys to find it easily. So I will also add this link to the story uh, we post on our website. Just go to WTSPWWII.com and you'll see this episode. Click on the episode on the homepage and this link to more information for Walking Point will be available. And they are still raising money. Um, they have a nice chart down here saying where the money is going to go if they exceed the amount of money they need for their movie. And so once they meet their full goal of uh, to cover their production cost, which is $45,000, anything past uh, forty-five dollars to $50,000 will be donated to canine and veteran charities. And so please check that out. Um, you know, they have very small donations. You can go in there and donate $10, $25, whatever you want to do. Uh, they make it easy to do. So um, Go check them out. Get some more information on them. Well, Jeremy, I want to thank you for your time. I know it's getting late. I know you got parental things to do and um, got work tomorrow. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. And um, I appreciate it. Before before I let you go, now, as you're talking about, you know, getting the word out to people, and it just dawned on me, is, is for any of your listeners who don't know about it, um, May 25th, the Saturday Memorial Day weekend, is a living history at Fort Clinch mm -hmm. uh, State Park on Amelia Island in Florida. And anybody who's interested, um, you can, again, go to our unit webpage at the 63rd Signal Battalion. Um, it's on the events there. It'll also be on the Fort Clinch State Park webpage. And that date again? Uh, May 25th. It's the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. And, and it's just a straight living history, displays of, of every facet of World War II. You can be Russian, you can be Polish, you can be German, you can be whatever. They just want a, a full display of, of everybody that was involved in World War II. And there is a Fort Clench Facebook event page. Just type in Fort Clench um, World War II reenactment. You'll find it. You can uh, hit interested or going and get all the information you need from there. Yep, and I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. And by the way, we still do have some What's the Scuttlebutt uh, stickers. Um, got a few of them left. 
These were uh, basically demo templates that I ordered just to see what the print would look like. I don't want to throw them in the trash and I don't want to cover all my property with it because then people think I'm super narcissistic. And so I want to give them out to you for free. So if you're interested, send me an email, info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Now I'm making up as we go along because now i got to go and create that email address because I just registered that domain name today. But by the time you hear this, it'll be up and running. That's info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Uh, send me your name, your address, and I will happily throw a sticker in the mail, send it your way. Um, and for those of you who don't know, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on iHeartRadio, and we're on Spotify and Google Music. So find us there. Spread the word. Thanks, everybody, so much for joining us for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And um, I'm going to rush to get this episode out. And I'm going to let you all in a little secret because you're here and you're listening. This is the second episode I've done today. Early this morning, I sat down for a very, very interesting conversation with a curator and a um, park ranger who worked over at the Springfield Armory Historical Site, and we get into great detail about the history and the war contribution of the Springfield Armory rifle going all the way back from the Revolutionary War up through World War II till its final days in 1968. So look for that podcast coming out probably sometime this week. And then, as I said, next week, uh, during St. Patrick's Day, we will be out on site at the filming of the final scenes of Walking Point, the movie. And uh, so look forward to that. And thank you all. And we will see you and talk to you all next week. Bye.